Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and it is time for the news for Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. Let's get to it, and we will begin with an update on the SolarWinds hack, a massive supply chain hack that's had a critically dangerous effect on numerous companies and governmental agencies, with the potential for a lot more damage further down the road. SolarWinds makes IT system management software, so you know, the type of stuff that network administrators might use to monitor and control really complicated computer networks. Hackers, likely backed by Russia, compromised a piece of software called Orion on the SolarWinds side of everything, and they inserted malware into the software code for the Orion product. So when SolarWinds pushed out updates to Orion, SolarWinds customers who accepted those updates because SolarWinds is a trusted partner, they unknowingly infected their own systems with a Trojan type of malware. That attack hit thousands of customers, but the hackers actually only followed up with a few dozen of them to further infiltrate and spy on targets that ranged from Microsoft to the United States Department of Homeland Security. Now Microsoft says that after analyzing the code found in Orion, researchers reckon that maybe as many as a thousand or more developers had worked on that malicious code, which itself consisted of 4,032 lines of code. Now, more than a thousand developers, that is a truly huge endeavor, something far beyond independent hacking groups. Microsoft President Brad Smith indicated that this sort of attack was new to the United States, but Russia had previously employed a similar approach in cyber attacks on systems located inside the Ukraine. If you want to learn more about the SolarWinds hack, I had a, uh, a an episode with hacker extraordinaire Shannon Morse. She joined Tech Stuff. The episode is titled The SolarWinds Hack. It published on February 1st. And Shannon and I explored the scope of the SolarWinds attack and what it all actually means. Spoiler alert, it's not good. And now let's switch to a collection of stories that I like to call Eat the Rich. And we've got some more updates on that story of Wall Street bets and the GameStop stock, this time looking at how the United States government is getting involved. So quick refresher, some hedge funds decide to short sell shares of GameStop. That's when you borrow shares of stock, you sell them at whatever the current market value is for that stock, then you buy back those borrowed shares so you can return them to the original owner. And what your hope is, is that the price of the shares will drop so that you make money on the deal. So let's say you sell some borrowed stock for 20 bucks a pop and you buy it back when it's at $10 a share. You just made $10 a share as you return the stock to the person you borrowed it from. But a group of independent investors, day traders, communicating on forums like Reddit and a subreddit called Wall Street Bets, decided to foil this plan by buying up GameStop shares and encouraging others to do so. Now that pushed the price of the GameStop shares up, not down. Then you had hedge funds freaking out because 
they were going to be obligated to buy back those shares. They have to in order to return them. And now they would have to pay more money than they made when they sold off those borrowed shares. And the Wall Street Bets folks kept buying up more stock as soon as it would become available, which pushed the price even higher, creating a short squeeze. It hit a high of around $483 per share. Uh, this was well above the $20 a share that it was at before all this happened. And that share price has actually settled off quite a bit. Right now, as I record this, it's around $52 per share. But that's still more than twice what it was when all this started. And the U.S. House of Representatives wants to talk to a few people about everything that's been going on. Among those people are Steve Huffman, the CEO of Reddit, and Vlad Tenev, the co-CEO of Robinhood. That's an app that allows its customers, its users, to buy stocks through the app. And also they want to talk to Keith Gill, who has the online moniker of Roaring Kitty. He's been invested heavily in GameStop since back in 2019, and he posted about it frequently. The Senate also wants to get involved. They want to determine if there was any manipulation of the stock market going on here. But on the surface, that doesn't seem to be the case, at least not for the price to go up. Sure, there were independent investors all working together to buy up shares of stock, but that in itself isn't manipulation. In fact, the Wall Street Bets crew maintains that hedge funds, that short sell companies frequently engage in activities that are specifically meant to devalue that company's share price. That seems to fall more under the manipulation umbrella. Also on the table are talks about Robinhood, which famously put a freeze on how many shares of GameStop users could actually purchase. And in some cases, they just stopped anyone from being able to buy GameStop shares at all through Robinhood. The House will examine if Robinhood broke any federal regulations in the process of that. As numerous media outlets have shared, a major hedge fund owns a significant stake in Robinhood, and the Wall Street Bets crew has maintained that the app is kind of part of a system that rewards the wealthy at the expense of everybody else. The U.S. Senate is also looking into the current state of the stock market in general, and the hearing in the House of Representatives should take place on February 18th, starting at noon Eastern time. They'll also be streaming it live, just in case, you know, you're interested in tuning in. Researchers with the Duke University School of Business published a report that an elite group of companies are responsible for more than half of all the revenue generated from the ocean economy. So we're talking about around 100 companies responsible for $1.1 trillion in revenues, or about 60% of all revenue from ocean-based economic activities. This is based off data that's actually a couple of years old, so it might even be more dramatic than that in 2021. Now, if you're like me, you might have had a pretty rough reaction to that news. I mean, that's an enormous amount of influence with a very small number of organizations. But luckily for me, the researchers provide a voice of cautious optimism about all this. One of the authors of the study has said, quote, one of our biggest challenges is to sustain healthy ocean ecosystems as economic use increases and climate impacts accelerate. This study confirms that a relatively small number of companies will be central to this challenge and have a real opportunity for leadership, 
end quote. So with that perspective, you could argue that it's actually easier to convince a relatively small number of companies to make some big changes that could have enormous benefits for millions. And it would be a lot easier to do that than to try and convince a ton of smaller companies that each have a smaller amount of influence and and thus have a small stake in a very big pool, as it were. Companies in the study included oil and gas companies that conduct, you know, offshore mining operations, uh, seafood production and processing, uh, shipping, cruise tourism, offshore wind companies, and more. The lion's share of that $1.1 trillion of revenue actually falls into, surprise, surprise, the oil and gas company slice of the pie. These companies had a combined revenue of $830 billion, or 75% of the whole thing. Yowza. Now, will these companies make the major changes to address sustainability challenges? Well, if shareholders demand it and pressure the companies to do so, or if the leadership of those companies takes these issues like ocean sustainability and climate change really seriously, perhaps. I withhold judgment only because I've seen a lot of companies act in short-term self-interest over long-term viability. But I hope the attitude of the researchers does reflect reality. All right, how about instead of wealthy corporations, I talk about wealthy criminals? And yes, there is some overlap in that Venn diagram, but I am focusing on people who are engaged in illegal activities and then turning to stuff like cryptocurrency in an effort to launder money so that, you know, they can actually use the money they stole. That's the whole purpose of money laundering. You take illegally obtained money, whether it was stolen or it came from illegal transactions, you know, like drug sales, that kind of stuff, or whatever, and you take that money, you mix it with cash from an otherwise legitimate enterprise in order to hide the ill-gotten gains. Now, this gets pretty tricky if you're talking about truly large amounts of money because regulators notice that kind of stuff. If a humble business let's say it's literally a launderer, were to rake in, you know, a hundred times more revenue than it normally would, that might raise some eyebrows. But anyway, an analysis company called Chainalysis published a report recently saying that 55% of all the money laundering happening with cryptocurrency can be traced to just 270 blockchain addresses. Beyond this core group of 270 blockchain addresses, you've got another 1,500 addresses or so that is responsible for 75% of all money laundering in the cryptocurrency world. Now, this kind of concentration of laundering could pose a big problem for the baddies out there, because with a bottleneck in cryptocurrency processing, law enforcement agencies around the world can narrow their focus on some of the most active addresses to identify and go after groups of criminals. And if cryptocurrency exchanges detect that they could be targeted for investigations, they might actually take more proactive steps to enforce anti-money laundering policies against users and shut down criminal activity ahead of official legal action. One of the things you learn when you start looking into big money criminal enterprises is that crime does pay, but it can sometimes be really hard to cash out without getting caught. Over at the New York Times, journalist Cade Metz has written an incredible piece about a movement that has really taken hold in the tech space, particularly among leaders in Silicon Valley. The piece is titled Silicon Valley's Safe Space, and it's about a blog that was called Slate Star Codex. 
Getz explains that a psychiatrist named Scott Siskin, who used the pseudonym Scott Alexander, created the blog and used it to write about a lot of big topics. As Getz says, quote, The blog explored everything from science and medicine to philosophy and politics to the rise of artificial intelligence, end quote. Now, I recommend reading the whole piece over on the New York Times. Uh, It's really well done, and I just want to give a kind of general overview without diving too much into the piece. Much of it focused on a school of thought that many of the leaders in Silicon Valley have been, you know, following or subscribed to. It's called rationalism, which sounds, you know, reasonable, right? I mean, rational's in the name. Ideally, the philosophy examines issues with a sort of scientific approach. The goal is to gain an understanding of issues and solutions using a rational line of thinking. But there's a tone that starts to pop up in rationalism that I personally find rather troubling. And it's a tendency to overlook consequences of certain actions or policies. I detect a tendency for privileged people to ignore the effects of their rationalism on those who are not part of that privileged class. Free speech is frequently cited as a critical element of rationalism, but there also seems to be a failure to address a problem I see, which is that those who have the strongest platform from which to speak freely are those who already enjoy a great deal of privilege. In other words, if you aren't one of the lucky few who are privileged, then freedom of speech doesn't mean as much because you aren't given the same platform that allows you to, you know, get your message to be heard. You aren't elevated and your volume isn't amplified the way the folks who do belong to that class experience. Now you can probably tell I'm not totally on board with rationalism. I respect a lot of what it's about in theory, but I also have fundamental problems with it in practice. And it's kind of why when I talk about critical thinking, I tend to pair it with compassion when I advocate it to you guys, my listeners. I find that compassion without critical thinking, that's terrible. It leads to bad decisions. It leads to magical reasoning. If you don't allow critical thinking and you just follow compassion, you're going to make some bad choices. But I find that critical thinking without compassion leads to decisions that can have really negative consequences for a lot of people. And Getz does a pretty good job of handling this matter with a very objective point of view, particularly considering that Getz himself became the target of harassment as a result of this uh, journalistic endeavor he pursued. So if you find my own perspective frustrating because of my own point of view, you should really read the original piece because there's a lot in there, including the way that various leaders have treated the concept of artificial intelligence Uh, And our AI really does pose some significant challenges from an ethical and existential point of view. So highly recommend you check it out. Okay, we have some more stories to get to, but first let's take a quick break. We're back. The Anti-Defamation League released a study last week that found videos on YouTube that promote extremist views like you know, white supremacy, are still not only found on YouTube, but also the site's algorithm is still recommending those videos uh, uh, if you happen to have watched other extremist videos. So if you watch one, you're likely to be 
recommended others. Now, this falls into a general problem of algorithms that potentially could be exacerbating radicalization. The purpose of the algorithm, ultimately, is just to keep people on the platform for as long as possible. Because more time on the platform means more advertising dollars going to that company. So you want to maximize the amount of time people are spending there. So if you click on a video on YouTube, the algorithm will take into account which video you chose and then pull up videos with related material in them and serve them up to you. Now, many years ago, the comedian Patton Oswalt had a bit about the DVR device TiVo and how he was having problems with it. According to the bit, he said he decided to watch some Westerns. And TiVo then interpreted that to mean that what Patton really liked were horses. And so suddenly TiVo was automatically recording programs that had anything to do with horses and presenting those to Patton as, hey, you liked you liked that other horse thing? Watch this horse thing. Well, that's kind of what YouTube's algorithm does. If you watch videos about people rescuing animals, you're going to get a lot more of those videos recommended to you. I know because that's what dominates my YouTube recommendations. But when it comes to indoctrination into extremist views, this algorithmic approach can be a huge problem. It's like YouTube is doing the recruitment on behalf of these extremist groups, populating recommendations with propaganda that persuades more people toward harmful extremist ideas. And also terms like extremism and radicalism are a little too vague, I think. You can have an extreme view, and it's not necessarily harmful, but we're generally talking about philosophies like white supremacy. That is undeniably harmful. The study found that YouTube's algorithm was likely to serve up more videos designed to appeal to these sorts of worldviews if you had watched a video already. Now, that being said, you are not likely to stumble across one of these videos in your recommendations without doing some of that work on your own. Google has really been working to limit hate speech on the YouTube platform. That is helping out a bit. In fact, according to Google, it's reduced the consumption of those types of videos by as much as 80%. But if you actually do seek out the videos, then you can find them. And you might find that YouTube starts recommending more of them to you, and that remains a problem. I hope to do a more thorough episode on this general topic in the future, and I have a special guest in mind who might help me talk about it, so stay tuned for that. Parler, or Parlay, if you prefer, has returned. The social network ostensibly dedicated to free speech, but effectively the place of refuge for the far right of the political spectrum online, was homeless for a while. That was after Amazon Web Services booted the company from their servers. But now the site has a new host, a company called Epic, E-P-I-K, that's also known as a harbor for other far-right websites and services that have had a trouble, you know, finding a home elsewhere. While those who have existing parlor accounts can access the site, the messages that once populated the forums before Amazon evicted them, those are not yet back. So those who are already members can go there, they can start, you know, posting in forums again, but they can't access older threads. Parler in general has had a lot of changes. Researchers were able to scrape tons of data off of Parler before it was banished, and there is no shortage of critics who will say that the company has proven to be extremely careless with user information. So a lot of people say that Parler is, is kind of a, a doxing tool all by itself. 
The former CEO, John Matz, has said that Rebecca Mercer, who provided much of the funds to launch Parler, fired him earlier this month, and Mark Meckler, best known for co-founding the Tea Party, is now serving as interim CEO while the company seeks out a permanent one. It's too early to say if users are going to return to the site in droves or if they will have migrated to other services. And I guess now it's time for me to talk about Clubhouse. And I'm sure most of you have heard about it, and a lot of you may have even used it. Me? Not so much. Not cool like that. But Clubhouse is an app that launched last March. It's an app that was created by Paul Davison and Rowan Seth after they tried to make a podcasting app. And it's really blowing up now after lots of early influencers and celebrities embraced the platform. Now, I'm still the grouchy old man who hasn't joined in, but the app creates audio chat rooms, which just makes me think of the old party lines you used to see advertised about all sorts of stuff back in the 90s. And you use the app to log into you know, various chat rooms. You can bounce around if you want, and you're able to converse over voice with other users about all sorts of things. And some of those users include famous people, like people like Lindsay Lohan and Elon Musk. And the topics of conversation can be really broad, with some rooms dedicated to celebrity gossip, some might be dedicated to quantum physics. It's pretty wild stuff. It's an invitation-only platform, and I've never received an invite, which is not a complaint. It's probably for the best. I mean, I record so many podcasts a week. I suspect most people hear as much from me as they would like. And in many cases, I'm sure it's more than that. Also, there's no Android version of the app yet, but it is on the way, according to the company. Uh, However, since it is invite-only, that means that Clubhouse has a sort of air of exclusivity around it, which automatically makes it more attractive for some people. Plus, in the middle of a pandemic, where most of us are stuck at home, it represents a way to chat with other people safely, and about all sorts of interesting or mundane topics. Everyone wants to be in the club they can't get in, I guess. I don't know. It all all sounds kind of stressful to me, honestly. I think I'd mostly end up just being quiet there, believe it or not. So (laughs) an invitation is wasted on me. If you have an invitation, give it to someone you think would get the most out of it, I guess is what I'm saying. The fact that you can just go in there and talk with folks has already led China to say, hey, uh, we don't want that here because the Chinese government cracks down hard on any form of communication that is outside of its own authority. And Clubhouse is also already at the center of other conversations about exclusion, harassment, misinformation, you know, the sort of stuff that we see on all social networks, really. I'm not think, saying it's, it should come as a surprise that it's over at Clubhouse, too. It's, it's an issue that has been problematic for every platform. Now, there have been some pretty nasty stories about bullying over at Clubhouse, but I think every social platform faces these issues. It's really how they respond to those problems that's worth talking about. And Clubhouse is still in the process of formulating its strategy for that, like getting moderators and that kind of thing. I imagine all that is going to have to change soon. It's going to have to be less loosey-goosey, but I'm sure I'll also do a full episode about Clubhouse in the future, so stay tuned for that as well. Several financial institutions are now joining initiatives in which they will share intellectual property in the form of patents, all in an effort to avoid patent trolls. This stems from a recent lawsuit in which a company called USAA filed a patent infringement lawsuit against Wells Fargo and won the case. 
They received a reward of more than $300 million for a pair of cases, actually. At the heart of the matter was an innovation in which bank customers can deposit checks by taking a photo of the check with their phone and then using their banking app to transfer money to their accounts, something that a lot of banks do these days. Now, the whole story behind that is actually pretty complicated. There was a company called, in fact, there is a company called Mitech, which Wells Fargo uses for its mobile deposits, and USAA both holding patents related to mobile deposits. So you had Mitech with some patents, USAA with other patents. They got into a big legal battle. They settled out of court. They retained the rights of their patents, and now USAA is going after other financial institutions. So the repercussions have encouraged a lot of financial institutions to enter into a sort of open source agreement to share IP in an effort to protect themselves against patent infringement cases. The biggest concern are patent assertion entities. These would be patent trolls. These are companies that make money by acquiring patents, and then they assert those patents against companies that are allegedly infringing those patents. Just a quick reminder, a patent protects an invention of some sort. That invention can actually be a process, not necessarily a thing. For the duration of the patent, the holder is the sole owner of that particular implementation of technology. If you want to use that tech, that approach, you either have to figure out how to build something else that achieves the same end result, but doesn't use the same process as the patented technology, or you have to strike up some sort of deal with the patent holder and thus license the technology. But patent trolls don't tend to offer licenses first. They get litigious. They aim for big rewards or court settlements. And that tends to scare everybody else, and it gives the patent holder a lot of leverage when they do, you know, try to negotiate licensing agreements. Meanwhile, critics point out that these patent holders aren't doing anything useful with the patents at all. You know, they're not making anything. They're not using the patent. They're just relying on it as a, a cudgel. They're hoarding patents and waiting for the opportunity to go after someone who appears to be using the technology without authorization. And back in the day, the company I worked for, How Stuff Works, was targeted by a patent troll that claimed to hold a patent that covered all of podcasting. Now, that particular case never really went anywhere for lots of reasons, but that's a story for another day. Hey, when was the last time you answered a phone call from an unknown number? For me, that would probably be something along the lines of five years ago. And as it turns out, it's probably a good thing. And I'm not alone in my decision to let my phone just ring to voicemail. According to Haya, a cloud services company that caters to customers like AT&T and Samsung, robocall scams are kind of at a peak. The company commissioned a survey, and that survey found that three out of four respondents say they were targeted by at least one phone scammer over the last year. Now, these are the types of phishing attempts that are looking for personally identifiable information, like social security numbers, bank accounts, that kind of thing. Maybe you're one of those people. You might get a call from someone claiming to represent the IRS and that you need to talk to them or face possible fines or worse. That's actually a pretty common one. And I know I've received a couple of robocall messages in that vein because at least in the old days, they couldn't really detect when voicemail was picking up as opposed to a human. So I would get these pre-recorded messages and it would always start, you know, like halfway through because it was already going through my outgoing message. It didn't pause 
and wait for the beep. So according to this survey, those who fall for the scam lose on average around $180, but some can lose a lot more than that. Meanwhile, because we're in that whole pandemic thing, people have been using voice communication a lot more recently, and so personal and business calls have nearly tripled in volume. Meanwhile, 94% of the survey respondents say that if it's an unknown number, they don't answer it, which makes it harder for legitimate communication to go through. So if a company does need to make contact with a customer, it can be impossible to get that person to pick up. Of course, if they just leave a legitimate message, that can help a lot. Now, I don't know about you, but while I might get three or four or sometimes six or seven calls in a day, it's very rare that any of those will actually leave a message. Now, you might wonder if anyone is actually working on this problem on behalf of consumers, and the short answer is yes. But the longer answer is, it's a complicated problem. It's not super easy to solve. In the United States, phone companies are supposed to create a new approach to caller ID by June 30th of this year and cut back on the practice of spoofing. That's when a caller can use a false caller ID to try and make a connection. Like, they're not using their own phone number, they have spoofed a different phone number that stands in its place. So if you've ever received a bunch of calls from a phone number that's similar to your own, you know, same area code, maybe the same first three digits of the actual number, then you've likely seen spoofing in action. That's a common tactic among robocallers. Now, I'll probably do a full episode about spoofing and what steps companies might take to cut back on it, but that'll be for the future, which is where you and I will spend the rest of our lives. Before we get to the future, though, we need to take another quick break. Let's talk about some of the dangers of relying on cloud-based services. Now, sometimes the cloud providing those services can go down and then you're at a loss. And this is one of those scary things that CTOs have to consider. Do you keep all your systems on-premises or on-prem as the cool C-suite folks say, or do you offload some or maybe all of those services to cloud-based platforms and then you rely on other companies to provide a more robust and redundant system that you can rely upon? Now, ideally, cloud services should be just as, if not more, reliable than on-prem systems, but sometimes stuff goes wrong. Last Friday, stuff went wrong for Notion, that's a company that provides cloud-based project management services. The company offers up a suite of tools for all sorts of things, from managing product development to product launches to marketing campaigns and beyond. Except on Friday, for several hours, the whole thing went down for everybody, which means 4 million users were not able to access it. So what was going on? Well, according to the company, there was a, quote, very unusual DNS issue that occurred at the registry operator level, end quote. That might be a little difficult to parse, so let's break it down. DNS stands for Domain Name System, which you can think of as sort of the directory for the internet. It's the distributed, decentralized record that explains what all those different machines connected to the internet are and where they can be found. Notion site, which is notion.so, has name.com as the registrar. So that's the company that registered the name 
to Notion. However, Name.com works with another company called Hexonet. Hexonet manages all companies, all websites that use the .so domain. And Hexonet had received word that some nefarious Notion users were creating pages in Notion that were an effort to fish sensitive information off of unsuspecting targets. So they were essentially using Notion as a platform for a delivery system for phishing attacks. Hexonet contacted Name.com about this, but Name.com was unable to confirm the reports with direct evidence. Hexonet then placed a temporary freeze on Notion's domain in order to sort out the mess, which meant that all of Notion went offline for everybody. Hexonet lifted that freeze later on Friday, but the problems with phishing scams in Notion aren't new. And as of this recording, the company hasn't really laid out plans externally anyway on how they're going to push back against those phishing attacks, which could mean that this event could repeat itself in the future, which is not a strong way to sell a project management platform if you're saying it might be offline occasionally as these sort of things happen. And now, ooh la la, Google has a lot to answer for in France. Okay, I'm sorry. I can't promise that's going to be the last of the accent and I know it's terrible. But a French court has ordered Google to pay a fine of $1.3 million, or 1.1 million euros, because the company's search engine gave misleading rankings about French hotels. And that's about the most French thing I think I've ever heard. You mess with French hospitality, you get the tarot by the horns. Okay, now, now I'm really done. I know you've all just sort of cringed yourselves out of existence. I apologize. So that was a mixed metaphor I was giving. It was also a terrible pronunciation of French vocabulary, but apparently Google was using one source for ranking hotels in addition to a couple of secondary sources, but they didn't meet up to the high standards of French sensibilities and hotel owners complained to the government, which then investigated the matter and found Google to be deficient in how it was ranking results. Quel dommage. So now Google has to pay this fine and presumably come about ranking these hotels in a totally different way. It's such a weird thing to to see, and it's something that would only really happen in the European Union. On Monday of this week, the CEO of Jaguar, the British car company, announced a new plan for Jaguars. That's the way we Americans say it. Starting in 2025, the company's cars will ditch the internal combustion engine. Yep, all the Jaguars of the future will all be electric, either with batteries or with hydrogen fuel cell technology. And a fuel cell is a lot like a battery in that it generates electricity through an electrochemical process. But unlike a battery, you have to actually refuel a fuel cell. You have to fill it up. Eventually it runs out of hydrogen and you got to top it off. On the bright side, the emissions from a fuel cell vehicle are primarily heat and water, which is a nice change of pace from carbon-spewing internal combustion engines. The Jaguar Land Rover is to have six new battery electric vehicles by 2026. Gone will be engines that require either gasoline or diesel, and the company itself plans to be carbon neutral by 2039. It will also mean making some big changes at the company's various manufacturing facilities. Now, Jaguar says it's not going to shut down their factory in Birmingham, England, but things are going to change substantially there after that facility finishes building out the 
the models that they're making for this year because they are not going to do that next year. But presumably that facility will be doing something else that supports Jaguar's new vision. Sticking with electric vehicles, Tesla is in the news again. You might remember last week when I talked about how China is ordering Tesla to shape up after quality control issues were found with the American-built Tesla vehicles that were imported into China, whereas the Chinese-built ones seem to be okay. Well, now Germany is ordering Tesla to recall more than 12,000 Model X cars because of a problem with loose trim. The country's motor vehicle regulatory agency, called the KBA, says that the molding on the trim can become loose. That means cars might have trim break off while they're in motion. That represents a hazard on the road. And the recall is for cars that were manufactured between 2015 and 2016. Tesla had already recalled some 9,000 Model X vehicles in the U.S. for a roof trim issue. No word if it's the exact same thing. And in January, the NHTSA urged Tesla to recall more than 130,000 vehicles because of a problem with the touchscreen interface. That acts as the screen for the rear-facing camera. It's also the way you control important stuff, like if you want to defog the windshield. So it could pose as a safety hazard if that fails as well. According to The Verge, Microsoft is quietly testing its xCloud service through a web browser. With xCloud, people who have an Xbox Game Pass are able to access their games in that pass through a browser now, playing a cloud-based version of the game through the browser itself. That's sort of cool. You would need an Xbox controller connected to whatever device was running the web browser, and then you're off to the races, particularly if you're playing Forza. That's a race car joke. The Verge reports that as it stands, it looks like the service is going to be limited to browsers that are built off of Chromium. So that includes Microsoft Edge and, you know, Google Chrome. There are apps on Android that already allow Android users to access the xCloud services, but this would allow you to do it straight through a browser, not with a specific OS. The Independent reports that Facebook is working on a smartwatch with the goal of launching it in 2022. Now, as you might suspect, such a watch would lean heavily on integrated services from Facebook properties like Instagram, WhatsApp, and, you know, Facebook. There's also evidence that it will have some fitness tracking capabilities and integration with some big fitness companies like Peloton. Now, the design incorporates a cellular transceiver, so... Assuming that's in this smartwatch, you would be able to use the watch to send and receive messages without necessarily having to pair it with a phone or anything like that. Now, considering Facebook's reputation with user privacy and leveraging user information to serve ads to those people, I would personally be a little bit reluctant to strap on a smartwatch that's monitoring stuff like my heart rate and my sleeping patterns next thing you know, I'd be getting ads for exercise equipment and lavender-scented masks and stuff. I mean, at least I would if I were still using Facebook, but you get what I mean. Can Facebook create a must-have piece of technology? Well, the company has tried in the past. Things have not really worked out so well. The Facebook phone is one of the legendary flops in the tech world, and smartwatches have frequently fallen short of expectations, so we'll have to wait and see. And that wraps up the news for Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. I hope you guys are doing well. You'll get another 
a typical episode of Tech Stuff tomorrow. Hope you guys are looking forward to that. Should be interesting. Uh, it'll definitely keep you awake because it's going to be about coffee makers. That's a, that's a little teaser for what to expect. Well, if you have any suggestions for future topics of Tech Stuff, you can let me know by contacting me on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.